Are you enjoying Reclaimed? I mean, my goodness, I'm loving this season. Andy had Obadiah last week. This week, we have Jonah. I'm sure you're familiar with the story if you grew up in kids' church. In fact, it was really funny. My son came. I, we have uh, Start Your Day with the Bible. That's what we do with my son now. He is Canaan. He is every day, Start Your Day with the Bible. However you want to do that, that's totally up to your interpretation. Whether you want to watch a video, you want to do the Bible app, you want to read from the pages of the Bible or whatever you want to do, son, you start your day with the Bible, right? And so... Gets up, comes into my office, I'm studying, preparing. I said, what do you got today? And he said, uh, I'm, I'm going to start my day with the Bible, here's what I'm going to do. And he opened up, and he was in Jonah. And I thought, how ironic that like the story of Jonah is one, he's swallowed by a fish, God spits him out, everything's great. Um, not so much, not so much. In fact, the story of Jonah is almost the exact opposite of most minor prophets that we'll cover today, okay, or that we'll cover throughout this season. Uh, Jonah is the one prophet where God is not speaking through him, God is speaking to him. Have to understand this. This is a different type of prophetic message. This is not a message of rescue through a prophet. This is a message of rebuke to a prophet. God's saying, you have not been a good prophet. You have not been a good boy saying, you have really messed this up, and now I'm going to rebuke you, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to correct you. And here's the interesting thing. Jonah rebels, the sailors repent, and the king falls to his knees. That's almost the exact opposite. It's usually the prophet is repenting, the people are rebelling, and the king wants to kill the prophet. It's the exact opposite with Jonah. Jonah rebels, the sailors repent, and the king falls to his knees, and then there is a subtle tragedy when it comes to Jonah. But let's start Matthew chapter 12. Um, we're gonna, this is really important. We're going to start here. I know you're like, I thought he said Jonah. Just catch this, and then at the end, this is where we'll end. Matthew 12, 38 through 41. It says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Prove it. Let's see you prove it. Show me you have it. Let me, give me a sign. He answered, this is Jesus, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Isn't that interesting? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Okay, Jesus just gave us a really interesting perspective to cling to as we talk about the story of Jonah. He's saying, if you want a sign, look at the book of Jonah. If you want some sort of sign of how, what you should do, how you should react, walking through rebellion, remember the, the Pharisees and chief scribes were incredibly rebellious of Jesus during his day. They were so rebellious that they were saying, prove it. Show us who you are. And Jesus is saying, I've already given you a sign for your rebellion. Hold on to that. Where are my good kids at? Good kids. You, you've just been traditionally, notoriously a good kid. Come on. Where... I, I can totally see it. 
did, abided by all the rules, got good grades, always did the right. You made a great homeschooler if you would have been homeschooled, right? Like you, where else? Where, we're not just going to pick on Ben. Where else? Where's that? Oh, I can totally see it. That one makes a lot of sense to me. Good kids, right? You just, you, you're always good. That's so good. We're, we're proud of you. <laughs> the world needs more nuns and missionaries, right? We're so thankful that you're, you're good. I was not good. I got a doctorate, though. Oh, I just had to throw it in there. I just had to. I just had to. You know, I just, not often, not often, but that was a moment. That was a moment. Um, I was not a good kid growing up. Rebellious, always angry, and I had some great moments, though. One of my favorite moments growing up, I was a freshman in high school. This, this takes a lot for a freshman to pull this off. I was a freshman, they discontinued pizza in our lunchroom cafeteria, and they moved to, so like they used to bring in pizza at our lunch, I think it was on Fridays, they would bring in pizza, and they quit doing it, and they went to these like square Tostina, you know what I'm talking about? I'm like, the, the ham's not real, the bacon's not real, the cheese is not melted, like this is not pizza. And I was so mad, I kept asking the lunch, like, when are you going to bring back pizza? They're like, oh, no, we, we're not bringing back pizza anymore. So I organized a school-wide, grade-wide rebellion against the lunchroom. Me and 109 of my classmates all came together and we said this next Friday, we're going to pool money together, we're going to order pizza, we're going to have it delivered at 12.20 at lunchtime, I'm going to let them in, and when they call our tables to go up for lunch, nobody is getting lunch, nobody. We scare the weak into not standing up, right? And the strong hold the line. We're not doing this. They're not taking pizza from us. So lunchtime comes, 12.20 hits, we're all sitting there, and the counselors, the school counselors come out, and they're, they're dismissing us by table to usually go get lunch, and, and counselor, and Dr. Long, or Mr. Long was his name, he came over, he said, hey, he said, you guys, you guys are all, you're all up for lunch. He just sat there, sat, and he's like, come on, guys, who's eating lunch? And nobody had any, like, sack lunches or anything. So he's like, what is going on? He's like, come on, well, fine, if y'all don't want to, all right, I'll go over here. And he said, you guys, come on, let's go to lunch. And, stuff. and usually we're running to the lunch line, right? It's a wrestling match to see who can get to first. Nobody moves. We all sit there, rooted in, not doing anything. Nobody's moving. And then all of a sudden, like, right as he's starting to figure out something is off, there's like four Pizza Hut guys that come walking down, and our cafeteria was in the main lobby of the school, and the front doors were right there. There's these four guys, and they come, and they've got pizza stacked sky high. And when they get to the door, I pushed the door open, took the pizzas, and my friends and I started handing pizzas out to different tables. And, and Mr. Long is like, whoa, 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 you can't do that. Stop right there. And then he runs to the, and he's outnumbered at this point, right? Like there's, there's no recovery for him at this point. There's pizzas flying around everywhere. He's the only one trying to do it. 109 of my classmates and I, we're taking pizzas. We're cheering, pizza's back, pizza's back, right? And Mr. Fleer comes out. He was our principal. He looks around and he is just like, no idea how to wrap his mind around it. He's like, what have these little inmates done? They have completely taken over and led a rebellion. And I mean, he's just standing there. He's shaking his head. He's ta- he and Mr. Long are talking. And he's just like, just, just let it go for now. Let it go for now. I, I, what, what are we going to do? So we're all eating pizza, right? We dismissed. That was the greatest thing in the world. Fifteen minutes later, I hear over the intercom, Luke Cunningham, come to the office, please. Luke Cunningham, come to the office. 
all my friends snitched. Every single one of them. Snitches get stitches. They all deserve something, right? Like, all of them ratted me out. Luke Cunningham, come to the office, please. I, I'll, I'll, this is a moment I'll never forget. And I know I've shared this with you before, but it's, it's one that has stuck with me. <clears throat> so I sit down. Mr. Fleur looks at me, and he says, Luke, you have incredible leadership. I'll give you that. He said, I, thanks, thank you. Those are, <laughs> those are the bad kids. Those are the bad kids. <laughs> The good kids are like, oh my gosh, I would have hated him. The bad kids are like, yeah, that's what we do, right? So he says, Luke, you, you have incredible leadership. But he said, when you figure out what's worth leading for, you'll make an impact. But right now, you're a rebel without a cause. And that stuck with me. I, I'm, you know, 30 years removed from that. No, not that much. 25 years removed from that. And I'm sitting here saying to, I'm repeating it back to you. It, it resonated so deeply with my heart. Luke, you've got something, but right now you're just a rebel and you don't even know why. That's the story of Jonah. Jonah is a rebel without a cause. He has no idea why he's rebellious, and when he's confronted about it, he just emotionally self-sabotages the whole situation over and over and over again. Let me ask you this. Why are you a rebel? Why? You're in church, and I don't know your business. I don't need to share your business, but you know your business better than I do. Why is that rebellion existing in your heart? What is it that you can't let go of? What is it that you can't stop doing? What is it that keeps you from obedience and following the things that God has asked you? What is it that rises up in you when I touch a nerve on a certain subject, or you read something in a book, or you hear something on a podcast, or you see something on the TV, and you're like, you know, I know I should, but I'm just going to rebel, and I don't even know why. That's what we're talking about today. A rebel without a cause, a man who has everything at his fingertips. God's hand is so on this guy, and he rebels, and he doesn't know why, and every time it is emotional self-sabotage to tank the whole thing. Let's walk through it. Let's start here. Uh, the case against rebellion. If you know, every week we have a formula that we're walking through with each one of these minor prophets. Here is Jonah's case against rebellion. God comes to him, and remember, he's not speaking through him, he's speaking to him. He is saying to Jonah right now, Jonah 1, 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. This could not be more clear. Because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran. Circle that word, ran. Jonah did not walk. Don't, Jonah did not think about it. Jonah turned and ran from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee 
from the Lord. Nineveh was a city known for its brutality, okay? So Nineveh was the city, when they, when they conquered you, they cut the heads off of the entire army, and they piled them outside of the city gates as a pile of skulls to say to any invaders or anyone that thought they would test Nineveh, you mess around with us and your head comes off, right? Like they were an incredibly destructive, incredibly brutal city. Nineveh was also the largest city of its day. It was 60 square miles in size. Now catch this. Tarshish was 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. Jonah was not taking a casual detour. Jonah was running in the opposite direction of God's command. Jonah wanted nothing to do it. So we continue on. Jonah gets on this ship. When he gets on this ship, a, God sends a massive storm, and the storm starts rocking the ship, and the sailors are like, what on earth is going on? So they take these, these dice, and they roll these dice, and they say, whoever this lands on, that's whom God has cursed, and it lands on Jonah. They go down, and they find Jonah asleep, and they confront him, and they say, what have you done to cause this great storm to come upon us? Listen, Jonah 1, 9 through 12. We'll pick it back up. Here's Jonah's answer. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. He told them. I'm, I'm running from my God. That's, that's what I'm doing. So they picked back up. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Listen to his answer. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Can you imagine that? Being so stuck and so stubborn in your own rebellion that you would say, kill me before I be obedient? You would say, oh, do you want me to change that? You might as well kill me. You want me to stop doing that? You might as well kill me. You want me to quit looking at that? You might as well kill me. You want me to quit drinking? You might as well kill me. You want me to quit taking those pills? Might as well kill me. You want me to change the way I act in my house? Might as well kill me. Jonah is so rooted in his own rebellion that rather than, and he knows it. I don't know that anything drives me more crazy than people who are disobedient and know it. He knows it. He tells them. And then they say, what should we do? And he doesn't say, take me back to the port and send me on the first ship to Nineveh. He says, kill me. Rather die then do what I should do. He said, kill me. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know, gosh, this is insane. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Think about this for a second. This is a man, talk about stupid. Like, this is a man who says to the sailors, right, I worship the God of the sea and dry land. Right? You heard him say that. I worship the God of the sea and dry land. And I've started to run from him by boat. What? What? 
Pick a different mode of transportation, Jonah. I worship the God of sea and dry land. So I thought it'd be great to take a boat to run from him. <laughs> thought I'd get away quickly. <laughs> Not that he doesn't have control over that or anything. And then all of a sudden, he is in the midst of his confession. He is saying to them, I'm running from God, the God of the sea and dry land, the God that I worship. They're terrified. What should we do? Throw me overboard. It's just crazy. And the craziest thing to me is he knows it. You are sitting in here today and you are in rebellion and you know it. You know it. You not only know it, you've chosen it. I, it's crazy how we do these things and we live in these ways. And, and I think it's because, and I hear this a lot, especially when somebody gets in trouble or does something crazy, um, I, I hear people say, well, Jesus loves sinners. I need to be very, very careful here because I, I want you to hear me very clearly. Well, we, this is our go-to, right? Someone does something terrible or horrible or so a follower of Jesus does something nuts and then we all say, well, we should be gracious. God loves sinners, right? And, and I want to be very, very clear. Yes, obviously, God loves sinners. Obviously, God is gracious. Obviously, God is incredibly merciful. Obviously, God is a God of second chances. We see that in the story of Jonah. But let me be very, very clear, just from a minor theological standpoint, when people tell me Jesus loves sinners. Here's what I would say. The majority of the encounters that Jesus has with sinners in the narrative of the gospel where he is gracious, he is merciful, he is kind, he is welcoming, those are sinners that don't know him. His harshest critiques, his most vicious challenges, his most Pointed rebukes were to people who claimed to know him but didn't follow him. Let's just rest in that for a second. Because I believe God loves sin. And I believe if you're a follower of Jesus and you're rebelling, God still loves you. God's still gracious with you. God's going to give you a second chance. But if you think that's a get out of jail free card, you are majorly deceived. Because his encounters with sinners were people who didn't know him. His harshest rebukes were to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the religious rulers of the day. And what does he say to them? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. No, 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 no. You're in trouble because you claim to know me, but you are blind. You claim to follow me, but Paul alludes to this in Romans 6, 1 through 2. He says, what shall we say then? What do we say in light of Romans chapter 5 and the gospel of Jesus Christ that has redeemed us from sin and mercifully and graciously saved us? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Isn't that an interesting question? Paul's saying, well, now that we know God's gracious, should we try it out? Now that we know God's gracious, let's keep going. Let's see what happens. Let's see how far his grace will extend. Listen to what Paul says. By no means. That's not the purpose. The purpose of grace is not to give you a license to keep doing what you want. The purpose of grace is not for you to knowingly live in disobedience and chalk it up to, well, God's merciful. Well, Jesus loves sinners. God's gracious. This is my get out, get out of jail free card because I follow Jesus and I go to church on Sunday mornings. Nothing's going to happen to me, right? No, Paul said, by no means that's what it is. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it 
any longer. This is the case against rebellion. The case against rebellion is this. You know it. You know it, and you keep doing it, and you don't think anything's going to happen. You don't think there are any consequences to your actions. You don't think there are any spiritual repercussions to your rebellion, to your knowing rebellion, to your conscious rebellion, to your chosen rebellion. You keep doing it and don't think anything's going to happen. Long, long, long before Anna and I had kids, we had a golden retriever, best dog on the planet. They are by far the best dog, the most obedient dog in the world. Such a good, and, and look, I'm all for fur babies. You know, I know people who have fur babies and everything else. Um, <laughs> now that I have four kids, I'll never have another dog. <laughs> because dogs, there's just, anyway, totally different world. If you think fur babies are preparing you for kids, and I, I love it. Have your fur babies, but they, dogs you can leave outside. <laughs> I mean, you can with your kids, too, <laughs> but they better have water. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, I don't know why I said that. Um, we had a golden retriever, and I remember a moment. We had just, we had literally just moved to Texas. We were living in River Point Apartments in Conroe, and, and there was, I had just cooked steaks, and right after I cooked these steaks, I set them on the counter, and I looked down at my golden retriever. I, I, I literally looked, her name was Johnny, and I looked at her, and she was sitting there just, I mean, as goldens do, right? Tongue hanging out of her mouth, tail wagging on the floor, right? Just, just wiping the floor with her tail, just looking, and I said, don't touch the steaks. Don't touch the, it's the most obedient dog on the face of the planet, right? And then I walk away. I literally grab something. I turn around and she's choking after swallowing it. Like, literally, like swiped it off there. And I looked at her and I said, Johnny. And I've never seen a dog cry. Like, I've never seen a dog cry. But this dog came close. You know how like the sad puppy eyes and the, 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 the like brokenness in her face. I, w I was like, what if you turned into a cat? Like, you're supposed to be obedient. You're supposed to do what I say. You're supposed to listen to me and you do this. And then she starts with this like, I mean like wouldn't even look me in the eyes. This dog had a soul, man. I mean, this dog was like. Like, I'm so, and for me, the endearment there was that she knew what she did, and it changed how I reacted. We're getting ahead of ourselves here, but here's what you need to understand. How do you break the case for rebellion? How do you break your willing, knowing sinfulness? It starts with a broken heart. It starts with the fi finally having a revelation that what I've been swiping, what I've been taking, what I've been doing, what I've been looking at, what I've been participating in, it not only needs to break my heart, but it needs to break God's heart. I need to recognize that what I'm doing has consequences. That's why Jonah keeps getting into this situation. And we're going to end here, but his way out of it is emotional self-sabotage. Every single time, emotional self-sabotage. He doesn't feel bad about it. He becomes a victim, and he emotionally tanks the thing. Kill me. Just kill me. 
take my life. That's the case against rebellion with Jonah. We move to the call to repentance. Pay very, very, very close attention to this. If, if you have been feeling like, oh man, I'm finally found out, pay very, very close attention to this. This is the call to repentance. Jonah 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Catch you up on the narrative, right? So they throw Jonah over. He says, just kill me before I fix anything. They throw him over. He's sinking to the bottom of the sea, and God arranges a fish to come swallow Jonah up. He is in the belly of a fish in the basement of the sea. Jonah 2, 1 through 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, catch this, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Let's continue on. Jump down a little bit. Jonah 2, verse 4 through 9. He said, I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep, surround, or the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Just, I mean, for a moment, put yourself in Jonah's shoes. You have rebelled knowingly over and over and over, and instead of handling your rebellion, you choose suicide, get thrown over the side of a ship, and you're sinking. Literally, seaweed is running through your feet. You're holding your breath for as long as you can, and you're about to run out of breath, and you're about to inhale your first gulp of water, and there's this fish that engulfs you, and in the belly of the fish, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Maybe I should just call out to God in my distress. And you call out and say, God, here I am in the belly of a fish at the depths of the dead. And God hears you. God hears your cry. So he continues on. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I will shout, I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of a man sinking to the, I mean, the literal depths of his rebellion. To the literal pit of death. Sinking to the basement of it because his rebellion has led him there and experiencing this miraculous fish that engulfs him and inside of that fish calls out to God and God Hears him. Here is the call to repentance in the form of a story. I had a professor long, long, long ago, Dr. Larry, who um, he was a counselor and he was a counselor and he, he taught a few classes at the college that I was at. And I asked him, I said, Why are you a marriage counselor? Like, what, what made you want to become a counselor? And he told me a story I'll never forget. He said, My dad. And he said, My dad. Uh, one day we got home from school and my brothers and I were playing upstairs in our room and all of a sudden we heard this, this loud 
weeping, this, this, un, this unquenching crying that was so painful and so terrible, we came running downstairs to find out what it was, and it was my mom. And he said, my mom had caught my dad in an affair, caught my dad cheating on my mom, and she was so broken, she was crying, she was hurting, she told him to get out, he was begging her, he was saying, I'll do whatever it takes, I'll do whatever it takes, I'll do whatever it takes, and she looked him in the face and she said, get out of this house, I never want to see you again. He walked out of the house, she slammed the door, and here is Dr. Larry with his siblings, and they're just crying, they're confused, they're heartbroken, they're consoling their mom, and they have no idea what to do. For the next year, his dad paid every bill inside of that house, paid the mortgage, paid the light bill, paid the gas bill. Every single morning, he would walk out to go to school, and his dad's car would be parked outside of their house. And when they would get in the car to go to school, he would just wave at his kids and his wife leaving. He'd blow them kisses, and he would just wave at them. They would leave. Every time they came home in the evening, the car was parked out there, and he would roll down his window, and he'd take an opportunity to address his wife, and he'd say, "Um, Kim, how was your day? And she wouldn't respond. Kim, how was your day? No response whatsoever. And he was okay with it. And he would just, every time he could try to make that opportunity on Saturdays when their mom would go out and pick up groceries and they'd go with mom and they'd come back home, he would get out of his car, he'd be waiting there and he would help her carry groceries up to the doorstep and he would set the groceries on the doorstep for her and then he would just step back and he would say, Kim, how was your day? And she'd take the groceries, walk inside, slam the door in his face. For over a year that happened. He said his mom or his dad also did one other thing. Every time he spoke to his mother, he would say, Kim, I'm so sorry. Kim, I'm so sorry. Kim, just hear me. I'm so sorry. And every time she wouldn't speak to him, every time slammed the door in his face, every time never engaged him, never talked to him, and he just stayed there. He said, Kim, I'm sorry. Kim, you'll never understand how sorry I am. So one Saturday afternoon, he was there and they pulled into the driveway and they were getting groceries and he picked up the groceries and he was just carrying the groceries to the doorstep. He set them down. The boys hugged their dad, went inside and he stood there and Kim picked up the groceries. She started to walk in and he said, Kim. And she turned and looked at him and he said, Kim, I'm sorry. And his boy said, Dr. Larry was one, he said, I I was like, Dad, one day you're going to get it. This is over. One day you're going to get it. There's no hope here. He said, all of us, the entire family, me and my siblings, we were like, I don't know what Dad's doing, but this is finished. So she comes, she picks up the groceries, he says, Kim, I'm so sorry. And she looked at him, and she said, I forgive you. Come on inside. They've been together ever since. And I asked Dr. Larry, I said, what, what, what about that makes you want to be a counselor? And he said, my calling is this, to tell people it's never too late to say I'm sorry. To tell people it's never too late to say I'm sorry. It may take years of begging for forgiveness. It may take years of I'm sorry. It may take years of selflessly serving and giving yourself and laying your life down. It may take years, but if you're willing to say I'm sorry, that's Jonah. We would look at Jonah the moment they took Jonah and threw him over the edge and Jonah was willing to die rather than be obedient to God and he hits the water and he starts sinking down. What would we say? We wouldn't say, God's going to send a fish. Watch this. We'd say, that sucks. (laughs) 
Long live Jonah. Guy should have went back to Nineveh. What is he doing? Yet he gets swallowed. And what does he do in the middle of it while he's sinking to the basement of the sea in the belly of the fish? He says, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. And what does God do? This is for you. If you're in here and you think metaphorically you are sinking to the bottom of the ocean today, that you are drowning in a pit of your own self-destruction, and you've had no idea what to do. Maybe, in fact, your, your emotional self-sabotage is very similar to Jonah's. God, just take me out of this world. And as you're sinking down, the only thing you can think to do one last time before the depths of the sea is say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. What does he do? This is where I love the story of Jonah. The covenant of restoration. Jonah 3, verse 1. So the fish comes to the surface and spits him out after hearing that prayer. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Isn't that beautiful? God speaks to Jonah a second time. God speaks to Jonah a second time and addresses him just like he did the first time. God comes back to speak to you. What does God do when you have the humility and you have the brokenness of heart to come to him and say, God, I'm sorry. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You may think you're too far gone. You may think you're at the bottom of the sea. You may think you don't have a hope. But if you're just willing to cry out to God, he will speak to you a second time. So we continue on. So Jonah obeys God. He goes to Nineveh and he says, in the next 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed and the people of Nineveh repent. The king falls to his knees. It says even their animals repented, right? Like the entire nation of Nineveh turns to the Lord in full-on repentance. Then Jonah 3 verse 10. This is, let's go back to it. What did Jesus say? If you're looking for a sign, look to Jonah. This is the sign. This is the sign that we've been looking for. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. What a passage. God, what? Number one, saw. God saw the people of Nineveh. He saw them turn from their rebellion. He saw them turn from their evil ways. He saw them with a repentant and broken heart hit their knees, throw their ashes to the ground, sacrifice to him, and say, you are God, I am not. The first thing they did is they did something, and God saw them. Then what did God do? It says he relented. That means to console and be sorry. So God sees them repent. He consoles them and he feels sorry for them. And then it says he did not bring. Other translations hit it better. It means literally a change of mind. So God changed his mind. What happened here? God saw them repent. He felt sorry for them. And he changed his mind. If you're looking for a sign, it's here in Jonah. And what is the sign? If you are living in rebellion, you are sinking to the pit of your own self-destruction. Cry out to God. And what does God do? He sees you. He feels sorry for you. And he changes his mind. My son, Canaan. Has, uh, I mean, 
Again, love him. He's great. He's creative, too. He's a great negotiator. He says to me, Dad, one, one day, he's like, Dad, can I go to bed at 9 o'clock during the summer? I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, no problem. Well, it had been a long day, early morning, and so I told him, I said, hey, son, uh, you're going to bed at 7.30 tonight. And he said, what? What? I grossly offended, right? Grossly offended. What? I said, yeah. He said, no, you can't do that. He said, you said 9 o'clock all summer long. And I said, I mean, I, I know I did, but it's been a long day, and we all need to get some rest, so you, you, you're going to bed at 7.30 tonight. Nope, nope, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. You said 9. Dad, you said 9, and you can't, you can't do that. And I, I looked at him, and I said, hey, pal, come here real quick. Come here. Come, here. come on in. Come on in close. He's nudging up. I said, hey. I said, how does 4.30 sound? And he looked at me. He looked like, he looked like this. And I said, listen. I'm dad. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I can change any bedtime I want. I can move anything around I want. And, and the bigger picture of this is what we need to understand is God can change his mind. If dad can change his mind, God can change his. This drives me wild. We have some idea of God that God can't change his mind. If God's mad at me, he's always mad at me. If God's upset with me, he's always upset with me. If God's frustrated with me, he's always frustrated with me. No, God can change his mind. And what changes God's mind? There are a number of things, but for our story, what was it? He saw. What changes God's mind? Seeing you repent. What changed his mind? Seeing you walk in obedience. What changed his mind? Seeing you shed tears of brokenness over your own rebellion. What changed God's mind? Seeing a man who was sinking to the pit of death cry out and say, I remember you. Will you remember me? I remember you. Will you see me? And God sees it. God not only sees it, but God has compassion for it. And God not only has compassion for it, but God will change his mind because of it. Do you want to change God's mind today? Fall to your knees in brokenness. Fall to your knees in repentance. Now listen. Man, this is a great spot to land this message, right? Can't you hear it? Can't you hear the invitation now? Are you ready to fall to your knees? Are you ready to come to the Lord? But there's more to this story. And I feel like I'd be cutting you short. And I feel like I'd be doing you a disservice if we didn't finish out this story. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up Jonah. And I'm going to be sensitive here, but I want to be clear. Because there's a subtle tragedy that comes with Jonah that I think we all need to see and understand. Okay, so uh, we get this. Jonah hated Nineveh. He could not stand Nineveh. His happiest moment was going back to Nineveh and declaring the destruction of Nineveh. To go back to them and say, 40 days, God's going to crush you. But God did what when he saw Nineveh? What did he do? Yes, thank you. When God saw Nineveh, what did he do? He changed his mind. When God changed his mind, watch Jonah, Jonah 4, 1 through 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Wow. He prayed to the Lord. Listen to him confront God in prayer. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, this is, that, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He tells us why he left. 
Catch this. Jonah left in the beginning, right? He ran to Tarshish. Why did he run to Tarshish? He just told you, is this not what I thought you would do? Change your mind. Is this not what I knew you would do? In fact, he tells him why he knows it. Exodus 34, 6, he quotes it. He says, I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What did he just say? He said, you know why I didn't go the first time? Because I knew you'd be gracious. I knew you'd be compassionate. I knew you'd be loving. I knew you'd be merciful. I knew you'd see them turn things around. And I knew that you would change your mind. Listen, tell me if you haven't heard this before. Verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. So here we are. Jonah, once again, goes through this incredible turnaround in the midst of his rebellion. And he finds himself in the sea. He's rebelled and he's wind up in the pits of the depth. And he he wound up there because he'd rather self-sabotage emotionally than be obedient to God. God rescues him. God raises him up. He does what God says. And when he does what God says, he doesn't like the result. So what does he return to? Emotional self-sabotage. Kill me again. Kill me again. Literally right back where he started. Right back in the same place. A man who's... Catch it. Jonah changed his actions after the fish, but he did not change his emotions. Jonah changed his actions, but he did not change his emotions. And the second he got frustrated with God, he did not have the emotional capacity to be more mature than his emotions because he did not grow in that spiritually. He was only willing to come out and finally do what he was supposed to do, but not grow into who he was supposed to be. So what happened the first time he experienced the challenge? What does he do? The same exact thing he did in the beginning. God, just kill me. Let me be very gentle but very clear. If you never allow, if you only change your actions to grow spiritually, but you never heal and change your emotions, you will always return to that self-sabotage. If you you never take the time to mature beyond your emotions, to walk spiritually into and beyond and grow from your emotions, and yet you keep showing up here and you keep listening to worship music and you keep reading your Bible and you keep doing, 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 and you resist becoming the person that God has called you to become, you will continually be like Jonah and return to self-sabotage. Here's what it sounds like. It doesn't always, though it does, sound like, God, just kill me. It sometimes it sounds like this in your marriage let's just get a divorce we have an argument things boil up and instead of maturing beyond the emotional response we just go straight to you know what forget it let's just get a divorce every single time every argument boils to a place where it's full-blown meltdown and the only response is what are let's just get a divorce or maybe it's i'm over it Even worse, I'm over you. I'm over you. I'm done with you. 
I'm not willing to mature to a place beyond my emotions where I can walk by the Spirit and have self-control. I'm just ready to emotionally self-sabotage everything. Every time it's out of my control. I'm just going to mail it in. Let, let me just be very sensitive. And I don't have a creative way to wrap this up or anything else other than the example of Jonah. Jonah is a man who was rebellious and running from God, and his only response was emotional self-sabotage. Throw me over into the depths and let me die. He experiences this radical moment with God where God rescues him from the depth and he cries out to God and he begs God and he says to God, I'll do whatever I need to. Will you please rescue? Will you remember me? Will you hear me? And God sees Jonah and God sees the people and he feels sorry and he changes his mind and Jonah goes and Jonah proclaims and the moment something happens that he doesn't like, the moment it's not his way, the moment it's not what he wanted, where does he turn to? Just kill me. Better be dead than alive. Here's what we need to do. We need to look at Jonah and find it in ourselves. Where do I emotionally self-sabotage? Where do I go when I am overly stressed? Where do I go when I am stressed and anxious to the max? Where do I go in my shame? Where do I go in my guilt? Where do I go under pressure? What do I do? Do I, do I make the turn that God wants me to, or do I just mail it in emotionally? Do I emotionally self-sabotage the whole thing? I'll tell you the first step. The first step is giving your heart to Jesus, to repent and turn back to Jesus. The second is to walk by the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit, because that's flesh. Emotional self-sabotage is flesh. Emotional self-sabotage is man's answer to man's problems. The Spirit is God's resolution to man's problems. But you have to submit to the Spirit. 